Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the PM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. So today I'm going to be talking through lesson number 3.6, Freedom of Life in Christ. This will be the first of two podcast episodes whose content is particularly oriented toward helping you prepare to write the application paper. So I recommend that before listening to this podcast, actually, the order will be a bit reversed. Before listening to this podcast, I recommend you complete worksheet for week three, which will require you to have read and engage with the Luther reading that is also uploaded to Canvas. So complete that first, and I'll walk you through a little bit about how I would complete that sheet for my own application paper, so to speak. Before we get there, though, I want to go back in time just a little bit to when I was in high school. Now, this may be a surprise to some of you, but I'm a bit of a nerd. I know, kind of hard to imagine. Uh, I'm also a bit of a political junkie, though much less so than I used to be. So I'm going to tell you a story about myself in high school uh, that explains an original career path that I had. Uh, In high school, I was a member of student government, and I felt like my junior year, we got nothing done, and we didn't really challenge the authorities in the way that I wanted to do, particularly in the area of discipline. Um, You see, the administrators at my school were disciplining students in a way that I thought wasn't fair and wasn't just, and we were the only students with any authority, so I thought we should try and do something about it. My idea was to establish a judicial board, basically an opportunity for students to hear the cases for low-level disciplinary issues of other students. And I knew a number of colleges and high schools across the country had tried something like this, but nobody else in student government was very interested in trying to pull something like this off. So my senior year for elections, what I ended up doing is establishing a political party for my high school elections. Like I said, nerd. The reason I did this is most candidates were limited to a two-minute speech during a school-wide elections meeting. And two minutes wasn't really enough time to present any ideas to the student body. But if I had a political party where all of the candidates agreed to support one another, and if we all spoke about part of the platform during our two minutes, we suddenly had 20 minutes to present our ideas to the student body. Sure enough, uh, we won every single position where we had a candidate running, which gave us a majority in student government, which allowed me as the student body president to do pretty much anything I wanted to do unless the headmaster stepped in and said it wasn't allowed. This did, in fact, get us that uh, honor board um, where students were able to try lower level disciplinary infractions. My hope was that it would limit some of those abuses that I saw the administrators take I don't actually know 20 years later if that's the case. Maybe it's become a stooge for the man. Either way, that was me, a young nerdy rebel, something like Che Guevara, back in high school trying to stick it to the man. We'll see if I can live up to that as an adult. Why do I tell you this story? Well, when I went to college, I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to get into politics. But something along the way... Uh, led me to change my mind and study theology. 
You see, gradually as I studied political science more and more at the University of North Carolina, I came to realize that many of the theories I was being taught in class suggested there was no place for ethics in politics or government. Something called rational choice theory suggested that all politicians should simply voice whatever opinions and ideas will maximize their votes. That way they can stay in power. I thought this was a deeply problematic theory, but I found that it was massively influential not only among students, but as I researched among certain politicians and among political science faculty around the country and world. It seemed to me that something had been lost by this vision of politics, and I wanted to research and find out what could be done differently, particularly from my standpoint as a Christian with certain Christian values and principles. Now, I'll spare you the specifics of my political and economic views. Eventually, things did spill over into economics. I'll spare you that for now. Just know they may not be what you might predict or anticipate. Having said that, though, these experiences set me off on a journey to consider how things like theology, how certain ideas about what humans are, who God is, what the good is, how those things should shape the economy and the political world. So my entire dissertation, for example, was trying to explore how Christian beliefs might dialogue with behavioral economics. If human beings are what humans say they are, then what do we do with economic data in behavioral economics that tells us that humans act certain ways under certain conditions? So you see, the idea of applying theology to a real-life discipline or career can be very technical. But it can also be very simple. So I'd like to also share with you a more simplistic understanding of how I apply a doctrine to a particular issue that I face as a Christian professor. And you should know that I'm sharing these stories to help you understand, uh, in part, what an application paper should be about, and also why it is that I believe that theology actually has something to say to your career and your disciplines. Why it is that I believe Sterling College is right in asking Christians and non-Christians alike to take a basic Christian doctrine class. So, what's my more practical example? I have a friend who joked that when it comes time to open and read your teaching evaluations, you need to wait until it's late at night, you're all alone, everyone in the house is asleep, pour yourself a nice full glass of whiskey, and once you've had about half of it, you can finally open up those teaching evals. Why? Well, odds are, at some point in time, you're going to get totally blasted by a student. They're going to think you're incompetent, unfair, arrogant, ignorant, who knows? But there will be negative content, and it's going to be anonymous, so you have no idea who it came from. Frankly, it can be somewhat frustrating. More than that, there's the concern that, that students might not be paying attention at all in class. They might be on their phones, they might be on their tablets, they might be falling asleep. I've actually had a student openly snore in one of my classes before at Sterling College. Needless to say, being blasted by the people you're trying to teach or having them fall asleep while you're trying to lecture don't really boost your confidence and your ego. So that's one problem that I face as a professor. 
Another problem that I face is I feel that I am called to do everything that I can in order to try and help my students to succeed. So this can create something of an existential crisis, to speak a bit dramatically. On the one hand, I have to try and help students succeed. On the other hand, sometimes they hate me. Sometimes they just fall asleep in my class. Sometimes they fail. How do I mentally deal with these struggles? Well, one answer for me has been found in the writings of Martin Luther, particularly his treatise on the freedom of a Christian, which I've asked you to read for this week, and I hope you've already filled out your worksheet for. Once again, if you haven't, maybe pause this podcast and do that before you keep listening. So Luther explains that all Christians are free lords and dutiful servants. We are lords because we've been justified by faith. I don't owe anyone anything. I have the status of being beloved by God. And yet because of union, I'm united with Christ. Therefore, I should act like him in serving other people. Now, I take this theological idea from Luther, and I've made it a core component of my teaching philosophy as a Christian. On the one hand, I need to do everything I can to try and help my students to succeed. That's why at the beginning of the semester, I'm giving you extra credit points to ask you to come sit in my office so I can get to know you and so you'll be more likely to come back if you need help. I've had classes that have struggled in the past. Once I had an extra review session at night before the exam in my house, threw on some popcorn and stuff, stayed up late at night with students, helped them cram and study. I have students that said they struggled to uh, retain the PowerPoints and wanted to know if I could help with some supplemental notes with fill in the blanks. I helped the student by putting those together. I could give you more examples, but the point is I try and go above and beyond to serve students. That's me being united to Christ and therefore being a servant to all. But I still get those negative teaching evaluations sometimes. I still have people falling asleep in class not wanting to take my classes, being on their phone during my class. And that's when I have to remember that I am a free Lord of all. Because I've been justified by Christ, my status in God's eyes is that I am sufficient. I have everything I need to be saved and valued by God. So if I'm trying as hard as I can, and there are students that still hate me, or students that aren't learning, I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to say I'm a terrible professor. I don't have to say I'm a failure, that my life's calling, that I'm incompetent, or that any of the negative things that are said about me are in fact true. Instead, I can commit myself to continuing to try and serve while acknowledging that my status before God is completely fine, thanks to justification. And I found that applying this theological idea has enabled me to navigate teaching evaluations in difficult classroom contexts far more effectively. So those are two instances where I have tried to take a doctrine and apply it to my life. One of them very technical. I didn't give you many details. One of them not very technical. The application paper is going to ask you to do the same thing. It's going to ask you to consider what sort of struggles might you face in your vocation? What sort of struggles might you face in a church context? 
pick a doctrine that might help you respond to those struggles more effectively if you believed it. And yes, I know you may not, but you can still count this as a thought experiment to think about how your career might be different from a Christian standpoint than from a non-Christian one. So that's the application paper in a nutshell. There will be more content by email this week and more content up on Canvas to try and help you out with it. Having said that, I do want to talk briefly about a few other things on PowerPoint slide 3.6, including another example for the application paper. Now, as you've read Luther and filled out this worksheet on Luther, uh, you may have had a question come up. If I don't actually have to do good things to be justified, can I get away with doing nothing good at all? And the answer from Luther's standpoint is no. So Lutherans, like Martin Luther or his successor as the leader of Lutheranism, Philip Melanchthon, Lutherans believe that the law in the Old Testament so all of the rules and regulations, have three functions. First of all, the law can be a basis for civil government. Now, not all verses in the Old Testament apply in this way, but certain of them do. So you should not kill that commandment in the Old Testament. Lutherans would say should apply to any government anywhere in the world. They must enforce laws against murder. The law is a basis for civil government, it's also a means of convicting us of sin and turning us to Christ. And you saw some of that in your reading and your worksheet, so I'm not going to go into detail there. Third, the law also serves as a guide for the justified believer. Once you've been justified, you should try and follow the law, not because from a Protestant standpoint it earns you salvation. Remember sola fide and sola gratia faith alone and grace alone, but because you are being transformed through union and sanctified so that you will be more like Christ. There are mistakes or heresies on either side from the standpoint of Lutherans and many other Christians. One extreme is antinomianism. Antinomianism refers to a group that says Christians don't need to worry about the law or being good at all. Maybe you've known some Christians that are functionally antinomian. They go to church, they claim to follow Jesus, but they don't seem concerned at all about personal ethics, about doing the right thing, about following the Bible. Well, Luther and his followers were clear that if you truly believe, you will truly try and obey, though your success in obeying does not at all lead to your being accepted. A second risk uh, is that uh, you might try too strictly to follow the law. You might believe that certain ceremonies and rituals and Sabbath observance and circumcision and things like that require you to be saved. This was a common feature in New Testament times, where it was often referred to as the phenomenon of Judaizing, making the Christian religion more Jewish in rituals. That tendency and that terminology has kind of faded away. Uh, the terminology in particular might be misunderstood as anti-Semitic in our 21st century context. So that's the function of the law, and those are some heresies on either side. From this understanding of the law, we can explore one more example of someone trying to apply the 
theology of Luther to their own context and something kind of like an application paper. So on slide five, I have a passage of scripture from Leviticus 25, 8 through 10. It says, count off seven Sabbaths or years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. That's Bible talk for after 50 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of the atonement. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. What does this mean? Well, the year of jubilee works something like this. Let's imagine that two of you open up different businesses. Anthony decides to open a software company. Um, Corey, on the other hand, opens up uh, dog food that is made out of pretzel. Now, it turns out that pretzels make dogs sick, so he loses all of his money. Terrible idea. Why would you come up with that? But Anthony's software company blows up, and next thing you know, everybody is talking about it instead of Apple and Microsoft. Corey's kids and grandkids, maybe, don't have any money because it was all blown on the pretzel dog food, and they wind up having to work for Anthony's kids, making very little money, not having much land or possessions or anything like that. Because Anthony's kids are pretty miserly, and they don't really share the profits of this software company very well. Well, after 50 years, Jubilee would say that Anthony's kids have to give back a share of the wealth to Corey's kids and Corey's grandkids, who've lost things because of their ancestors' poor business decisions. Basically, we hit a reset button, and everybody winds up going back to square one, where they have a share of the land and property and wealth. Now, this is a biblical commandment. It's something we should do every 50 years. But I bet if I polled you, hardly anyone will have radically redistributed wealth in this manner. Very unlikely. The second use of the law, according to Luther, should therefore drive us to Christ. If this is the standard of holiness, radical redistribution of wealth, you have not met that standard. And so you need a savior who is holy in your place. And in fact, Jesus Christ, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians, he was rich, but he became poor for our sake. Not only did he give up the splendors of heaven to be born in a manger, but he also gave up whatever meager wealth he had as a carpenter's son, and instead lived an itinerant life as a preacher, where the donations that were given to him were primarily used to help those in need. Jesus fulfilled this sensibility that many of us have not. But the third use of the law suggests that we should try and go as far as we can toward fulfilling this. And so I'd like to introduce you to an Italian woman named Chiara Lubitsch, who has founded a movement that has tried to do exactly this. This movement is called the Focolare Movement, and it began in Italy during World War II. Italy had been bombed out by the Allied powers as they were advancing upward into Europe and toward Germany. Italy had been allied with Germany, of course, and was an empire that was acting in an immoral fashion. But we have to remember that there were regular Italian citizens who were suffering as a byproduct of this bombing, and Chiara and many of her friends were among them. You see, so many people had lost everything in the bombing that those who still had homes and possessions came together around a hearth, or 
focolare in, Latin, in uh, Italian, and shared what they had in common so that no one would be in need. There were some others who weren't willing to share everything, and so they practiced what is known as bundling. They took some of their possessions and went and brought them to the focolarini, those who gathered around the hearth, for redistribution. And out of this practice, everybody in this Italian town was able to have what they needed to survive. Now, this ideal of the focolare movement spread around the world. And so it was nearly 50 years later that a very elderly Jara Lubitsch, no longer in her young 20s, found herself on a trip in 1991 to Rio de Janeiro. And as she looked down, as she was flying into the airport, she saw some favelas and large numbers of poor people. And she realized there were not enough members of this movement to share sufficient possessions to actually eliminate poverty there in Rio. So at the speech that she had planned when she was visiting Rio, she impromptu announced the establishment of what she called the economy of communion. We needed businesses that could generate more wealth, but in a manner that they would share this wealth with those who were in need. As of 2012, there were 861 businesses participating in this economy. Some of them were quite small, basically mom and pop type stores, but some of them were quite large. For example, the largest steel manufacturer in Argentina in 2012 was a member of the economy of communion. So what is the economy of communion about? There are several mandatory requirements here. If you want to be a member, you have to share your profits. So that's all the money that you make after paying for your expenses and your employee's salary and so forth and so on. The profits that you share will be used in three ways. First, a portion will be sent to help those in need. Second, a portion will be reinvested in your business. If your business grows, you can hire more people who therefore won't be poor. Third, a portion is given to making edu educational structures for what's known as the culture of giving. Essentially, economists are studying ways to share wealth in this fashion uh, in ways that won't harm your business and will actually help the economy. A second mandatory requirement is that of mission. Communion is to be adapted as the ideal at every business level. Third, you have to commit to trying to fulfill Christian ethics and incorporating Christian spirituality into the workplace. So what does this look like, practically speaking? Well, we've seen cha changes in pay structure by certain members of the economy of communion. For example, they've implemented a just wage. They found that employees maybe were not making enough to pay for their living expenses in various contexts, and so different employers would reduce their earnings in order to be able to pay the lower level employees enough to meet rent and groceries and basic insurance and things of this nature. Another common practice was recruiting the poor. So the rationale was that somebody with a master's degree in business can probably find a job anywhere. But someone who's been homeless is probably going to find it quite difficult to find a job. So if you intentionally recruit those who are poor and train them to be able to fulfill their jobs, you'll be changing their life. Another change is participative management. So more democracy in voting what the company should do rather than the CEO and CFO acting unilaterally. 
The economy of communion is established business parks, conferences, research groups. And in all of these areas, the economy of communion has actually embodied the theological principles present in the Focolare movement that emerged from this idea of Jubilee. It's an example of someone taking a theological idea and trying to transform the world of business as a result. And this economy of communion has had some success in Italy, in Brazil, Argentina, um, as well as even in certain places in the United States. So those are three examples of an application paper. My teaching philosophy, my doctoral research on theology and political science and economics, and the economy of communion with Chiara Lubitsch. I'll note that Florovsky and his theological analysis of death, and Ignacio Ea Correa and his analysis of the life of Christ and its political significance would also count as examples of theological application. I know that you don't have PhDs, and I'm not expecting you to start a culture-changing movement as significant as Lubitsch, but I do want you to think through how doctrines might relate to your careers or your religious life in a church. If you have any questions about the assignment, reach out to me and I'll try and help out. Otherwise, have a good rest of your week, and I look forward to connecting with you when we next do. Be well.